Almighty God, we come to you now in the name of Jesus Christ, not because of any good that we do on our own. We take no confidence in what we have done, but we take full confidence in Jesus Christ. And so we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, bringing our requests and the needs of our church and asking that you would work. Father, this morning as we pray, we remember Stephen Worley, who is preparing to transition to a new workplace. Father, we pray that his, his final week on staff here would be fruitful for him. Father, we pray as Stephen goes to Palm Beach Atlantic that you would use him there and allow great fruitfulness to his ministry at that university. May he help others there grow in Christ, and may he help us as he continues as a member here. Father, we think of our children and our children's ministries. Father, as Stephen leaves, would you provide workers to serve in this place? Father, would you help our parents as they serve as primary disciplers of their children? Father, would you give them wisdom and faithfulness and love and godliness in their parenting? Father, we pray for the, the children of our church Oh, Lord, would you open their eyes to their need of Christ? Father, we pray for their salvation, that they would one day turn from their sin and turn to Christ. Father, we, we together right now lift up any who are hurting in our midst and in our church. We think of Ruby Gowie, who has been in the hospital this week for breathing problems. Father, would you sustain our sister and would you preserve her body? Even more, O oh Father, let her faith hold strong as she trusts in her Lord. May she find her rest in Christ today. Father, we, we come now to your word, and we, we need to hear from you. We, we need to sit under your revealed word, which is our authority. So, Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would work through your word. We pray that your, your spirit would illumine your word to our hearts. We pray that you would work in us, even now in this room. Transform us. Teach us, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Well, Anton syndrome is a rare neurological disorder. By what I can see online, only 28 cases of this health problem have been published. Individuals who have this disorder of Anton syndrome are verifiably blind, but they affirm and often animately affirm in the face of explicit evidence that they are capable of seeing. They, they fail to accept or even realize their blindness. And instead, their minds fill in the gaps of what is missing in their, in their sensory input. They are convinced that they can see. Imagine what that must be like, trying to convince others. I can see just fine. I can see. But all the while, being completely blind. Unfortunately, this syndrome, which is rare physically, 
is quite common spiritually. I wonder if you've ever been around someone who insists they are seeing a situation correctly, but it's quite obvious to you there is no clear vision. I wonder if you've ever had this problem. Well, how would you know? Sin has a deceptive, blinding effect on us. So often we think that we see things clearly. We're convinced we don't have a vision problem. And yet, in truth, our, our sight is painfully askew. Friends, this is why we need God's word so desperately. God's word works in this, this epidemic of, of blindness denial. It shows us our spiritual blindness that we are denying. And it opens our eyes. This spiritual blindness that I'm talking about this morning is exactly what we find in today's passage in the book of Luke. We come to a group of spiritual leaders, the, the Pharisees. And in today's passage, Jesus comes to a series of really conflicts and arguments with these leaders. And this tension is, is escalating in Jesus' ministry. These Pharisees were Jews who were supposedly worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But their lack of spiritual sight just escalates, even to the end of this passage, to being in complete rage and, and anger. If you haven't already, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. We'll learn from the passage that Chris has just read for us verses 33 through chapter 6, 11. I'll work through it as we go along. We're going to see three different controversies, and so I'll just give one point for each controversy. But you, you need to have your Bibles open and just follow along closely here just to see how this logic develops in these arguments that are going on. My prayer is that we today, through seeing these, can follow Christ correctly and, and not wander ourselves into spiritual blindness. So what did the Pharisees miss? Point number one, they missed joy in Christ's presence. The Pharisees missed joy in Christ's presence. The scene we left off with last week, if you look just back up to the passage preceding, was that Jesus was attending a feast, and he was with tax collectors and sinners. Levi had come to faith in Christ, and the first thing that he did was he, he threw a party for Jesus, and Jesus attended. And the, the, these Pharisees, these religious leaders, looked down on Jesus for attending this feast. You'll remember Jesus responded last week by saying that he came as a physician to those who were sick, needing repentance. So here the picture is that Jesus is apparently willing to go enjoy this feast. And in this context, we get to verse 33. We read this. The, 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 the Pharisees question him, saying, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. What an accusation. You're celebrating too much, Jesus. Shouldn't you be more pious? Shouldn't you be more religious? Shouldn't there be more fasting and prayer among your disciples? The disciples of John and the Pharisees would fast often. So to fast is merely to abstain from eating food. It's a good thing to do. And in Scripture, we see it's a useful practice. 
for followers of God to do. We see it often across Scripture for times of mourning or times of repentance or times of seeking and focus after God. But it, it was not a regular commanded practice for the Jewish people. God had commanded fasting one day a year in the Old Testament at the Day of Atonement. But the law of the Pharisees, their, their made-up religion, required fasting not once a year and at times of need, but twice a week. So in this tone of disdain, these, these religious leaders, they want to know why Jesus didn't have his disciples fast. And Jesus here gives this powerful illustration in response. Think of the last time you went to a wedding celebration. Especially think of maybe the last time you were in a wedding party. I'm guessing part of that celebration included food. The rehearsal dinner, the, the outings with the bride or with the groom, the reception to the, to the wedding itself was probably just a, a great big party where you got together with friends and ate. Well, the same would have been true for Jesus' day. The, the, the wedding celebration was marked by, by eating and drinking. How foolish would it be to show up at a friend's wedding and announce, hey, if it's okay, I'm, I'm just not going to eat anything because I'm fasting today. How inappropriate would that be? You go ahead. You go ahead. I'm just fine. I'm just going to sit over here and watch. Or let's take this a step further. Fasting was often associated with repentance and grief, mourning over sin, asking for God's help. So imagine your bridesmaids coming to your reception all dressed in black. How insane would that be? Or imagine members of your wedding party being announced as they're coming in one by one into your reception. And they come in, not to celebratory music, but to a, a funeral song. All solemn. What an offense. How misplaced. The very moment that requires joy and celebration being replaced by signs of grief. This is what Jesus is saying. His presence, the presence of Jesus Christ, is the commencement of a wedding party. He inaugurated a new era of joy for God's people. Friends, this is just a, a loaded illustration which Jesus is using here. Because if you read back through the Old Testament, the God of the Bible refers to Israel constantly as his bride. And God plays the part of the husband. He sees himself as Israel's groom. Just think of Isaiah 54, 5 and 6. We read there, For your maker is your husband. The Lord, Yahweh of hosts, is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth. He is called, for the Lord has called you, like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. You see, in the Old Testament, Yahweh entered into covenant with his people, and he uses a wedding analogy to introduce this covenant that he has. And here, Jesus comes on the scene, and he says, that he is the groom at the wedding. The, the groom has arrived to this party. In, in this illustration, 
we see that celebration is fitting for God has come to covenant and be in relationship with his people. And so for the disciples, Jesus was there and he was present. Fasting was not needed at this point. As one observer states, all fasts are preparation. Marriage is fulfillment. God's people shouldn't be mourning or grieving at this point. No, they need to be celebrating. Do you realize, church, this illustration is for us too? You see, if, if God, God today has invited us, in a sense, into this wedding feast, Scripture uses this picture of a bride and groom to refer to his relationship with the church. If you're here today and this is new, or perhaps you're visiting here for the first time, let me tell you that God wants to be in relationship with his bride. He has created you for a relationship with him. He's created you to know him in a covenantal love. And yet our sin has broken that covenant. We've been like an unfaithful spouse that has just run away from him. And yet he, as this perfect groom, this perfect husband, invites us back. And he does that by sending his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came and lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sin and rose again. So that now anyone who would look to Jesus Christ in faith, who would believe in his work on the cross would have their sin wiped clean, their sin covered, and would be fit and ready to enter into relationship with, with God himself. Let me just encourage you, if you're here today and, and this message that I'm telling you right now is new for you, talk to someone today before leaving. Just, just find a, a church member here or, or one of the pastors and hear more about how you can be in relationship with God himself. And for Christians, let us now ask, what does this look like for us? How should we understand, uh, understand ourselves in, in response to Jesus' words here about fasting? Should we fast? Well, in one sense, this celebration of Christ's marriage to the church is for us. The, the Pharisees were blind to this. They missed that Jesus was there, present with them. Friends, we are not wandering off alone, wondering who our husband is. We have been united unto Christ. And so for Christians today, there should be a marked joy in our knowledge of God. Because we are united to him. This is why we can sing together as a church as we just did. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. But church, we also live in the time between the times. Jesus has inaugurated his kingdom, but he has not yet consummated it. He has, the, the groom has, has come, and he has not yet taken his bride, us, away. In fact, look down at verse 35. Jesus says this. He says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. You see, Jesus knew that he would not always be physically with his disciples. He would go to prepare a place for them and for us. He's not with them, and when he's not, then is a fitting time to fast. 
This seems to be, by the way, the direction that Jesus is thinking as he finishes out this chapter. He, he adds on several illustrations here, back to back. And the point of each of these seems to be that there's an appropriate time to, to each time and place. There's a newness here that's happening in Christ, and that we must respond appropriately to the time, to this new era that's beginning in Christ. So verse 36, you notice you don't put an unshrunk patch on an old garment. When the patch shrinks, the terror will become worse. Or verse 37, you don't want new wine in older wineskins that are already brittle. When the wine ferments, the brittle wineskins will, will just break. Jesus' presence was like this new wine or this new garment. Jesus is picking up on this idea of fasting and is kind of bringing it into to terms of the wider new covenant and saying something new is here. I am here. And so there, there is this new covenant which I am introducing. Then verse 39, he says, no one drinks old wine and wants newer wine. Now, this could be taken a couple different ways. This was a common saying of the time. Perhaps Jesus was pointing out that Pharisees would not welcome in this new covenant. They were stuck in the old. Regardless, the point of these is that Christ's presence demands a fitting response. We see that even more in the next section. So, church, just let me just briefly just tie this up. As your pastor, should you fast? You know, I think there's Christian freedom on how to fast. I think that there's Christian freedom in the Bible on how often to fast. But it seems the New Testament seems to expect that Christians will, at some times, fast. We wait in longing for the return of Jesus Christ. So just briefly, three suggestions on that. If you want to learn more about this spiritual discipline, consider picking up the book by John Piper, A Hunger for God. John Piper's book, A Hunger for God. It's an excellent resource. If I had a couple, I'd give them out right now, but I don't. But read about it and learn how this is a healthy discipline for us to do as a church. And then consider fasting and praying for increased focus, for seeking God's guidance and seeking repentance in your life. These are the main themes that we see in Scripture for fasting. And then thirdly, consider fasting with someone else. We actually see this quite a bit in Scripture. Small groups getting together, or even congregations getting together, and fasting in pursuit of God. Well, we see Christ has come, and we should look forward to his second coming. Let's keep moving on. We see a second controversy develop in the next few verses. What did these blind Pharisees miss this time? They missed here not only seeing the joy of Christ's presence, but number two, they missed rest in Christ's person. They missed rest in Christ's person. This is the, the point of this next section. Look how it unfolds. Look at verse 1. On a Sabbath, as Jesus was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, and they were rubbing them in their, their hands. So Jesus is with his disciples, is traveling through grain fields. They pluck heads of grain, and they rub the stalks together to break them down so that they could get the edible portion of the wheat out and eat it. Verse 2, some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Now, these religious leaders were accusing Jesus' disciples of working on the Sabbath. So the issue isn't that they grabbed the grain. Actually, this would have been common 
in those times gleaning as you were a sojourner walking through a field. No, the issue is that the Sabbath was a day of rest for God's people, not to work, to, do no, to, to, to rest in him. And scripture never really says that plucking heads of grain in your hand was a violation of the Sabbath. But in fact, I, I think scripture gives relatively few specifics on how to rest on the Sabbath, what it must look like. And so what these, these Pharisees did was they added to God's law. They, they set up borders, as it were, around God's law additional laws to make sure that no one would get close to breaking God's law. They had precise rules and they had uh, meticulous mandates for what should and shouldn't be done on the Sabbath. And, and they even admitted this. Jewish tradition says this. It says, the rules about the Sabbath are as mountains hanging by a hair. For scripture is scanty and rules are many. So for the Pharisees, merely plucking a head of grain was considered harvesting. And merely rubbing it in your hand was considered threshing. So in verse 2, when Jesus was eating this grain, which was not lawful to do, you see that in the text, it was not lawful. This is in the eyes of the Pharisees, in the traditions of men. Jesus and his disciples, just to be clear, did not break any of God's laws. They were being condemned for breaking man's traditions about God's laws. Think how foolish of an accusation this is. The, the teachers of the law are correcting God the Son based on their interpretations of his law. He was the only one who ever perfectly kept the law. Surely they hadn't perfectly kept the law. They are blindly using the traditions of men to correct the one who is the Lord over all. And so Jesus exposes this foolishness. He uses scripture to show their inconsistent hypocrisy and their, their nitpicking that they're doing. Look at verses 3 through 5. Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and he took and ate the, the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but for the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So here, Jesus recounts the story from 1 Samuel 21. And in this story, David enters the tabernacle and eats the bread that is reserved for the high priest. It seems that Jesus is drawing a parallel to prove a point here. He's pointing to a text that the, the Pharisees would have accepted as an apparent breaking of the law because of the greatness of, of David's authority. Jesus isn't saying that it's right to break God's law, but rather, if they accepted this great King David to apparently break God's law, then how foolish is it to condemn Jesus for merely breaking human traditions when he is a, a far greater king? He's, he's showing their inconsistency. But then he goes even farther. In verse 5, he says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. 
here is now a claim to deity. The Son of Man refers to this messianic title back in Daniel and Daniel's prophecy. And basically what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees by saying the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. It's it's, kind of like he's saying, guys, do you remember when the Sabbath was even instituted? Go back to Sinai and, and to the people of Israel. And when they first received this law, I was the one who gave it to them. I was the one who set it up in the first place. Pharisees, go back to creation. Go back to that time that you know God worked six days and then he took one day off. I, that was me. I modeled that for you. I am, I am Lord over this institution. Or as one brother put it, don't you tell me how to interpret my day. The Pharisees were claiming authority through their tradition. And Jesus is showing that he has all authority. He's the one who set up the law himself. Here's the irony of their blindness. The Sabbath was meant for stopping of labor, to rest in God. And God was now here before them. And instead of resting in him, The the Pharisees are claiming not to work, but they're doing the opposite. They're working at making sure others don't work. And they're missing God in the process. They're failing to rest in the Lord of the Sabbath, who is right there. They're missing the whole point. So just briefly, for, for our church today, some of you might be wondering, are we under Sabbath laws today? I believe the answer is no. Jesus fulfilled the old covenant Sabbath laws. And in his new covenant, Jesus now invites believers to find our rest in him. So in the new covenant, we see this shift from Sabbath to Lord's Day. The New Testament church still gathered one day in seven. They set aside Sunday as the Lord's Day. We see this in scripture, but without the same Mosaic law requirements. So here's a good discussion for your your lunch table today. As you go out, have lunch with a fellow church member, how can you enjoy the rest you have in Christ in a special way on the Lord's day? What can this look like for you? Now, we're not bound to the Mosaic law, but we, we do see this pattern in creation of working six days and then resting for one. So talk with a friend about it. How can you use your Sundays? How can you use your Lord's Day to give special rest and special focus on Christ? To find your rest in Him. Personally, I I enjoy getting together with other Christians for lunch after the service and discussing what we learned and what we took in that morning in the service. I also enjoy on Sunday afternoons taking a nap to the glory of God. I enjoy reading scripture and and fitting in some reading that I might not normally have for other days at other days during the week. I loved last Sunday gathering again on Sunday evening for prayer and worship, which we'll do, by the way, the first Sunday of every month. It was so good to see the room packed last week as we met for worship and and prayer and encouragement. I love how the, the Puritans used to call the Lord's Day the market day of the soul. 
just because we're not bound to the Mosaic law doesn't mean we shouldn't be intentional in how we rest in Christ. This is good for you to think about. So discuss it with a friend. Well, Jesus did no physical work on the Sabbath, but he was working spiritually. We see this in the final section. Here we see a third area that the Pharisees missed in their blindness. They missed number three, seeing the goodness in Christ's work. They missed seeing the goodness in Christ's work. Look at verse six. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. So this man had a, a physical deformity in his hand, which likely being his right hand meant his, his whole livelihood was at stake. And then in verse 7, we see that, that caring for this man was not the priority of the spiritual leaders there. What a shame. Even from the beginning, they're, they're caring more for their self-righteousness than for the suffering of others. And so they set a trap in verse 7. They watched him, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. This term for watching him literally means to, to spy on. It's the idea of watching out of the corner of one's eye. You see, in their traditions, the Pharisees actually went so far as to say that, that helping anyone physically, unless it was life-threatening, would be work. So if you weren't going to die that day, it could wait. This man's hand was surely not a life-threatening issue. So if Jesus was going to help, he could just wait till the next day, they thought. So they wanted to accuse him. But verse 8 says that Jesus knew their thoughts. Again here, he shows he is God. He is omniscient, knowing exactly what they're thinking even before they speak. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come, stand here. And he rose and stood there. So it seems that Jesus is, is putting the, the man at the center of the synagogue. He's effectively, he's, he's focusing everyone's attention on this man. If the, the Pharisees were surreptitiously watching him to try to catch him, trying to spy on him, well, Jesus will act in, in plain sight before all of them. He'll make sure everyone sees this. Come stand up here. No one will miss what I'll do right now. And yet, even in front of all of them, they are still blind. Look at verse 9. Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? This is a, this is a self-answering question, isn't it? It's obvious. Even in, in the Pharisaical tradition, to save a life was allowed on the Sabbath. So, of course, this day is, is set aside for God. The law's purpose was to do righteousness, to, lead, to learn to do good. On this day set apart as holy, what will you do, good or evil? Jesus will only ever do good. And he will never fail to do good that he should do. No traditions of men will stop him from doing good. 
And so he pauses in verse 10. Look at it. And after looking around at them all, he spoke. What must this have been like? The, the, the man is, is standing there. The question has been put to the Pharisees. And Jesus just stops and seems to allow them a minute to reflect. Mark says that he, he looked around grieved at their hardness of heart. Can you just imagine the silence in that room at that moment? He looked around at all of them. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Jesus Christ is Lord. His creation always obeys his voice. But these self-righteous leaders, these truly spiritual men, said no. In their spiritual blindness, they were in denial. This, this blatant act that he just set up and did in front of all of us. He's, he's unashamed in his authority. And in their anger, they are blind to the fact that God is standing there in front of them. Verse 11 they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus had just said in verse 9? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save a life or to destroy it? Jesus was being prophetic, it seems. Jesus was doing good and they were doing harm. Jesus was saving a life. And they were planning to destroy life. And they were blinded in their foolishness. Friends, this is what legalism does to our sinful hearts. Legalism leads us to find our worth not in Christ's saving work, but in our being good enough. The Pharisees did not rejoice in the salvation that Jesus was bringing that day. The Pharisees rejoiced in their own right performance. Legalism, legalism does this too. It, it adds to God's law. It adds to what God's law requires. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They were setting this, this hedge around God's law in their pride, requiring what God never required. Oh, church, we must be on guard against this. When the Bible is clear, we must be clear. But where the Bible gives freedom, we must not bind consciences. The Pharisees confused these choices of discernment and prudence with following God's law. They confused the two. Notice, uh, almost none of the guidelines themselves were intrinsically wrong that the Pharisees were doing. But they were led astray and limited freedom on others. 
What about you? Do you have room in your life to disagree with other Christians in areas that the Bible does not speak definitively on? Are you quick to judge those who are different from you on secondary matters? Legalism leads to this kind of pride, this overconfidence, not in what the Bible is, is clear about, but in areas that the Bible gives freedom. We ought to have a category in our minds for areas that are, first, issues of obedience, according to Scripture. And then, secondly, a category of things that are issues of prudence, issues of wisdom and discernment, where we are willing to disagree. Let me give you a couple of examples here. Let me just pause on this point, okay? So, an area of obedience. God commands all Christians to gather with their churches regularly. Hebrews 10.25. An area of prudence. God doesn't specify how you are to spend your Sunday afternoon. Go take a nap. An area of obedience. God commands that we repent from sin, that we have a godly grief over sin. But an area of prudence. God doesn't command how we should fast when we're turning and repenting from sin. What that looks like. What about this one? God commands, Romans 14, that we submit to governing authorities. As long as they aren't calling us to disobey God's law, we are to submit to the government. But does God command who we should vote for? No. Good Christians can disagree when applying biblical principles in the voting booth. Friends, we must Realize that so much of the Christian life is helped by seeing where God gives clear commands and where he allows freedom and prudence and discernment to lead. And if we don't, we are in risk of walking down the same road that the Pharisees walked down. We must, we must learn our Bibles well so that when an issue comes up that is a matter of obedience, we see it as that. And when an issue comes up that's a matter of prudence or discernment, we see it as that. Where scripture gives freedom, we should not be like these Pharisees. We must have room for charitable disagreement in our church. Well, we should conclude. These, these Pharisees, they, they missed so much. They had spiritual Anton syndrome. They were, they were blind, but denying their blindness. Friends, they missed seeing Jesus. They missed the joy that is in the presence of the bridegroom, even though they could have been headed to his wedding feast. They missed the, the Lord of the Sabbath who was in front of them, even though they could have been worshiping him in, in perfect rest. They missed seeing the one who heals as God, doing good, because they were preoccupied with their own self-made standards. They missed seeing Jesus. Beloved, don't make the same mistake today. Don't make the same mistake this week. In all your learning, in all your doing, in all your obedience of God, don't miss Christ. Is he yours? Is Christ your bridegroom? 
or are you concerned with lesser things? Do you, do you look to that final day, the day that Vlad read about at the beginning of the service? The, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb that we are all headed to, where our faith becomes sight. Let's look to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for our church. I pray that you would protect us against spiritual blindness and hypocrisy. Father, I pray that we would be a church that, that charitably disagrees on areas where there is Christian freedom. Father, I pray that we would be a church that rests in you. Even today, may we rest in Christ and the joy that we have in him. Father, I pray that we would be a church that celebrates in the presence of Christ, looking to that final day. We pray all this in the name of Jesus.